Hello and welcome to Karen's Medical Corner. I'm Karen O'Day. I'm a certified family nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I own and operate Evercare Family Practice and my specialty is on family health care as well as women's health, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy for men, women, and children, as well as aesthetics. I'd like to do a podcast today on something that is right around the corner for giving a lot of people symptoms, and that is on seasonal allergies. It can be seasonal allergies as well as year-round allergies, but seasonal allergies really um, seem to get people starting in spring, and uh, so I wanted to do a little talk on that to give you some information on the cause of allergies, signs and symptoms, testing options, as well as treatment options. So to start, seasonal allergies as well as year-round allergies are not caused by a low immune system. I have a lot of patients that'll come into the clinic and they'll say, I think my immune system is low because I have allergies. It's actually the opposite. Allergies are caused by the immune system overacting in response to something that it's recognizing in your system as foreign and harmful. So anything that's not part of us is going to be recognized by your immune system as foreign, but we always hope that it's going to recognize it as foreign and non-harmful, not foreign and harmful. Otherwise, you start to develop antibodies to protect yourself from what is considered an offending agent. So with seasonal allergies and year-round allergies, there's a specific immunoglobulin. It's called immunoglobulin E, otherwise known as IgE antibodies, that are activated in response to exposure to things like pollens or feathers or dust mites or pet dander, any type of animal dander. Uh, and it can activate, uh, if your immune system recognizes it as foreign and harmful, it'll activate the production of this immunoglobulin, which gives you an immediate response to the what is considered the offending agent. And that can give you a lot of symptoms. And these symptoms can be anything from uh, nasal congestion, sneezing, itchy eyes, watery eyes, itchy nose, runny nose, itchy throat, dry cough, a lot of post-nasal drips. Sometimes people will even develop hives. Uh, fewer, uh, more, less common side effects would include fatigue, low-grade fever, body aches and pains. So those are all symptoms that can be associated with immediate exposure. But then people will say, well, how come the exposure persists? Well, there's two cascades when we're looking at allergies, uh, specifically seasonal and year-round allergies. And the first one is the immediate response, and the second one is a delayed response. So if, if you have continued exposure, you're going to possibly have a delayed response, which is where um, your immune system is further activated and in your bloodstream, you have basophils, we have uh, leukotrines, and we have mast cells that are also there to protect us from foreign and harmful agents. And so if your immune system is continuing to see these agents as foreign and harmful, this delayed response can occur, and that just keeps the cascade going where you're constantly having symptoms. And so that's a lot of times when people will seek out uh, advice from a healthcare professional. So it's really important for patients to recognize some of these symptoms because a lot of times my patients will call and they'll tell me they think that they're sick. 
and they they have a cold that they have at the same time every year and they need to come in so we'll make them an appointment I have them come in but the first cue to me that it's maybe not an illness is that they'll tell me they experience this the same time every year so people can have different types of, of allergies they may be allergic to to some uh, pollens and not allergic to others. So in the spring, we tend to see allergies that are associated with the trees blooming. In the summer, with the grasses in bloom, and in the fall, with weeds. And then the year-round allergies would be seen as we shut up our houses, like to dust mites, pet dander, uh, mold, which is more active in the cold. So those are things that can cause the year-round symptoms as well. And so when I see somebody, I always take a good medical history. It's very important to get a good medical history and especially to find out if in response to these exposures, has someone ever had hives? Have they ever had shortness of breath? Have they ever felt like they're having swelling of their throat or swelling of their tongue or they, they can't breathe? Because those are signs of a, a much more severe allergic reaction that's known as an anaphylactic reaction that is emergent to get to a hospital quickly and to carry an epinephrine pen. Now most people don't have those severe reactions but certainly some do when you have the immune system that is really uh, overacting. So once we determine that it is allergies some people want to have testing and some people just want to treat symptoms. I think testing is really important because it's really hard to do complete and a well-rounded education for people if they don't know exactly what they're allergic to. So testing options come in two forms. There is the gold standard of testing, which is doing skin testing, and then there's a blood draw that can be done in the office. So skin testing does require a little bit of preparation. You have to be off certain medications and herbal supplements for about seven days before uh, testing, and that includes antihistamines, leukotriene blockers, say like uh, Singular, uh, a lot of herbal uh, supplements like milk thistle, for example, all of those things can suppress your immune system's response to the allergy testing and you won't get accurate results. So for skin testing, skin testing overall takes about an hour to do in the office. You, it can be done in, in a number of different places, but very common places would include, include the back, or on the forearms. And this is where the area would be cleansed. And then they're actually taking a little bit of what you're allergic to, a little bit of the antigen of what you're, what they think that you might be allergic to. So there's, you can test for a, a variety of things. It's really common to test from anywhere from 30 to 52 different allergens. And they make a little pinprick on the skin. So there are the, and not just one pinprick at a time, usually they'll have um, a little uh, dish that has multiple antigens in it and they just prick the skin on the forearms, the upper arms, and then you sit with your, your arms extended, the timer goes on, or if they're doing on the back, the timer goes on for 20 minutes, and then after that 20 minutes is over, they're looking at any reaction on the skin to what they've just done a little tiny uh, prick on the skin with the antigen and then that's determined whether you're allergic or not and based on the size of the wheel or kind of looks like a little hive that's measured in usually millimeters and then it's determined if it's a class 1 allergy which is mild class 2 class 3 
class four and class five, and class five would be pretty severe. Now, one, one thing that I always tell people is you can't always take the severity seen on a skin test and associate it with your symptoms. So sometimes people will have a significant allergic response to one pollen and a very mild response to another pollen, but that's the pollen that gives them the most symptoms. Or it's a combination of pollens that'll give people symptoms. So it's hard to tell exactly what your immune system is recognizing as more severe in correlation with how you you did on this skin testing. Although oftentimes it is. Somebody tests for a high allergy to one pollen, they may have significant symptoms. But I'll have people who come in and they'll tell me, I tested really high for uh, allergy to dog dander and I'm around my dog and I don't have any symptoms, but I go outside and I'm exposed to pollen and I have significant symptoms which were seen as mild on the testing. So this is just giving you an idea of how your immune system is responding to each antigen. The other way to test for allergies is through a blood draw. And you can do what's called RASP testing or IgE-mediated testing. I like the IgE-mediated testing because when the blood is drawn, it's actually testing your individual IgE levels to each of the possible allergens and giving you a numbered value. And then that determines whether it's a class zero, which would be no allergy, class one, which would be mild, class two, which is moderate, class three, which is high. And then you can go from there on determining how to treat your allergies. So once you're diagnosed, once a patient is diagnosed with allergies, then the conversation always comes up, well, how do you treat allergies? And treating allergies and treating allergy symptoms are two different things entirely. There's really only two ways to treat allergies. And that's either complete avoidance of the offending agent or through allergy immunotherapy. And so it can be really hard to avoid the offending agent if it's pollens because pollens can travel thousands and thousands of miles and give people symptoms. So it's not as simple as cutting down every tree in your yard, which is something we don't want people to do because they're still going to probably experience symptoms. But to try to avoid when possible those allergens. And so if, if it's a food allergy, that can sometimes be relatively easy if you just don't consume that food and you're aware of what you're eating. But with environmental allergies, that can be significantly different. Pet allergies can sometimes be easy to treat if you don't have a pet and you don't live in a house that has pets and you're not exposed. But, it's diff but a lot of people want to have their pets. I mean, I have pets myself and, and I would not um, ever uh, not have my fur babies. Uh, even if I had allergies to them, which I, I don't, but a lot of people, if they're told by the specialist, will get rid of your pets, and that's just not really an option for them because they're your family and they're important. So avoidance is not always possible. The other way to treat your allergies is to do immunotherapy, and immunotherapy can be done in a couple of ways. You can do sublingual immunotherapy drops, or you can do allergy injections. Now, allergy immunotherapy is formulated using pretty much the same stuff that they use to allergy test you with. They're, they're formulating, uh, according to your specific allergies, the severity or response that you had to each allergen tested for, and they're putting it into a serum that's either injected 
or that's dropped under the tongue. Now for allergy immunotherapy done sublingually, which is under the tongue, to me that's a fantastic way. It's actually my favorite way to treat allergies. It's very effective. Uh, you, a, a patient is given vials with different concentrations and they take those vials home and they build up over a period of time to a maintenance dose. So the, the, the allergies are treated on a daily basis by the patient at home. They have two EpiPens just in the, in the event that there is um, an anaphylactic reaction, which is exceedingly rare. And, I, and in doing a literature review, I was only able to find one actual anaphylactic reaction to allergy sublingual immunotherapy when it was done appropriately. And, and that was a very long, long time ago. So it's a very safe form of allergy treatment. It's sometimes not done as frequently as maybe it could be because a lot of insurance companies don't cover it. However, if you were, if a patient is to call their insurance company and find out how much a copay is to get a shot every week or every month versus how much the sublingual immunotherapy costs because it's usually given in a three months supply, a lot of times it's a wash. So I've done both. I've done sublingual immunotherapy for myself and I've also done allergy injection immunotherapy. And I found for me that the, the allergy immunotherapy via sublingual drops was much more convenient for me because I didn't have to revolve my world around going to an allergist office to get a shot. I could go on vacation, I could go on, you know, any type of trip for any length of time, I just took my drops with me. You still do this therapy for around the same amount of time, but instead of building up to uh, maintenance therapy, which routinely, and not always, but routinely is around 18 months, with sublingual immunotherapy, you can build up to maintenance in three months. You still do the, tr the therapy for three to five years because it takes a long time to retrain your immune system. And, that, and, and then you see if you can come off or if you still have symptoms. So with allergy injections, usually you go into a, a provider's office once a week, maybe twice a week. And it takes about 12 to 18 months most of the time, unless you're doing an accelerated immunotherapy, to build up to um, what we call maintenance. And then you do allergy injections every two weeks for six months allergy uh, injections every three weeks for six months and then allergy injections once a month for three to five years and that is often uh, the route that people will go because it is covered by insurances for the most part um, but like I said depending on what works for the patient there are treatment options so those are the two ways that we treat allergies and the way that those that the immunotherapy works is that it's giving you a tiny tiny dose of what somebody is allergic to and it's retraining the immune system to recognize this agent as foreign because it's always going to recognize it as foreign because it's not part of your body but instead of being harmful to recognize it as foreign and non-harmful to have you stop this release of IgE of mast cells, basophils, leukotrienes that are giving you these symptoms. And it's a very effective uh, modality to treat allergies. And it's, it's pretty much the only one, unless you can completely avoid what you're allergic to. So now we're gonna talk about treating allergy symptoms because that's everything else that's out there. It's not treating your allergies, it's treating your symptoms. However, I will say that there are other ways to do immunotherapy. 
And besides just those, some people will use uh, like local honey or local bee pollen, but you have to be very careful with that. And you need to see your healthcare provider before ever attempting anything like that because you can, if you're ingesting something that has a little bit of what you're actually allergic to, which is in what's in local bees, honey, and, and bee pollen, you could anaphylact. So you need to make sure that this is something that is a, a good treatment modality and not just do something. A patient should just not go out on their own and try that. So treatment of allergy symptoms, that's a whole different subject because you're really not retraining the immune system. It's just trying to suppress the production of uh, histamine for most, most part or um, mast cells or leukotrienes. So there's a large variety of treatment options and people see this on TV every day. They read about it in the media. They hear it on the radio because commercials are everywhere. So if we start kind of from head to toe, if you're, and a lot of times people will just want to have treatment to the area that they're having symptoms with. So for allergies involving the eyes, they have multiple uh, treatments that people can use they, for, for symptoms. They have eye drops that are histamine eye drops. There are over-the-counter, you know, uh, artificial tears that can kind of rinse the eyes. Those help a little bit. The antihistamine drops actually worked really well. For nasal symptoms, they have uh, nasal antihistamines. They have nasal decongestants, which people can develop a tolerance to and have rebound congestion. It's not a good idea to use those. They have uh, nasal corticosteroids. So that would be things that we hear about uh, that are used once a day to help uh, decrease symptoms. They're used long term. And then we have antihistamines. And people know antihistamines pretty well. They're, they're systemic antihistamines. So you have the ones that cause drowsiness, like diphenhydramine, uh, for example. You have the ones that are supposed to be non-sedating. That would be like loratadine or fexafenidine. It, those type of things and they they work fairly well and then they come in combination so you can get them with a decongestant as well men need to be very careful if they're taking anything that has a d on the end of it so sometimes they'll be advertised uh, with the decongestant and that can affect the prostate and so they need to be that that needs to be something that's used with caution and you should always check with your healthcare provider before using any of these medications to make sure that one they're not going to interact with any medications you may already that a patient may already be on and two that they're not going to exacerbate any symptoms that a patient might might already have like glaucoma or um, bone health so it's very important that people really not just treat their allergy symptoms on their own but seek uh, medical advice and then for itchy skin, which can also be associated with, with seasonal allergies, they have uh, different types of creams, uh, corticosteroid creams that can be put on the skin. They have other types of uh, antihistamines that you, can, uh, that you can use on the skin. And then for, for delayed reaction, there are medications that are FDA approved to treat uh, leukotriene response, and that would be something like Montelukast, uh, this is a prescription, but all of those are treating your symptoms. And so I have patients that want to use those medications and I do prescribe them quite frequently, but I always tell 
patients that that's not treating your allergies. So another way that you can avoid having symptoms is to kind of try to allergy-proof your environment. So when we talk about allergy-proofing your environment, we know that really since the 1970s, which has been decades ago, that homes and schools and offices have been built with a more airtight kind of specifications to help conserve energy. And this is really good because we do need to conserve energy. However, in doing that, it causes airborne particles to kind of remain in the air with nowhere to go. So if we look at uh, if we look at sites from the uh, with the EPA, we see that indoor air can be up to 70 times more polluted than the outdoor air. And the American Lung Association actually has um, done studies that show we spend about 90% of our time now indoors. And 60% of that time is spent in our homes. And so that being the case, many illnesses like allergies, asthma, um, allergic rhinitis can be caused or aggravated by polluted indoor air. And so what do we do about this? Because we know that allergies are a reaction of our immune system to substances that are allergens, and this is what's causing us to have the increase in runny nose, congestion, sneezing, the stuff that we just talked about. So it's really important for us to be able to treat our symptoms to have a decrease in exposure in our environment that we're spending the most time in. So one of the things that we that people really tend to have a lot of symptoms to are dust mites. And dust mites love to live indoors. They are in every part of the United States. Doesn't matter if you live in a dry climate or a humid in climate, climate, although sometimes humid climates have more. But the dust mites like to feed on flakes of human skin that are contained in dust particles. And so we're constantly shedding skin flakes all the time, up to about a fifth of a gram per day is what we shed. And that's enough to nourish a dust mite for long periods of time, even if we haven't been in those rooms, the dust mites can still get their nourishment from that for weeks and weeks and weeks. So we know that dry air causes uh, the dead dust mites. So if we, if we dry out our environment, and we're very dry in New Mexico, it causes the dust mites' bodies and their body parts to break down into a very fine powder, and then people can start to inhale this powder, and that can give them symptoms. Uh, we can take a few steps to kind of help minimize dust mite exposure, uh, and specifically where they like to live, which is in the bedroom. They love to live in the bedroom. They love to live in carpet. They love to live in curtains. And uh, there are things you can do to kind of help decrease the dust mite particles in your home. So the first place you may want to look for, for treating dust mites would be obviously in your bedroom because they love to live in pillows. They love to live in the mattress. So getting dust mite proof pillowcases, uh, dust mite proof mattress enclosures, um, and box springs that are not permeable to dust mites 
can be very helpful. And a lot of times I'll have people tell me, well, I don't want to use a plastic cover. It makes me sweat. Well, you can get dust mite proof covers for your pillowcases as well as your uh, mattress um, that are cloth. It, you just have to make sure that they say dust mite proof because it's a little bit of a buyer beware. You may have, uh, you may see something, if it doesn't say allergy proof on it or dust mite proof on it, then it's not going to work for that. You want to also wash your bedding in hot water. That's basically at about 130 degrees every 7 to 14 days. And take off the dust ruffle too. Make sure you're washing everything. Also, if you live in a humid climate, a dehumidifier in the summer or air conditioner to help bring humidity levels down below 50% will help. Um, and then if you have carpet, you know, uh, you, you'd be told by a specialist, get rid of the carpet and put hard flooring. But if that's not possible, you can also treat carpets with anti-dust mite products and also vacuum your floors uh, frequently, like on a daily basis. You want to use a vacuum cleaner that has a high allergen containment system with a HEPA filter on it. Um, other things that you can do, this is seen more in, with kids, but you can remove uh, stuffed animals from the area, because a lot of adults have stuffed animals too. Uh, remove pillows uh, off of the bedding and wash those in hot water if you can, or you want to put them in the dryer on high to kill all the dust mites. Um, also using an accurate humidity gauge to see how much humidity is actually in your environment. That's not such an issue here in New Mexico, but it can be in climates that are high humidity. Uh, you can get also for winter time, because a lot of times people will start to experience symptoms as soon as they turn their heating on, uh, primarily if they have duct work. So you can get a cover to go over the vents in, for your duct work to help uh, that are dust mite proof that let the air flow through but keep the dust mite out and keep the dust mite and keep the dust out. And that would uh, that also you can also use a, a HEPA air purifier um, that also decreases uh, uh, contaminates in the air. Also wearing a dust mask when you're cleaning will also help. And then if possible, try to have furniture that's made of wood or leather or vinyl. You want to try to avoid heavy drapes. If you do have drapes, you need to vacuum those as well. Um, and, but better to use anything like, a, like a vertical blinds or something that you can easily wipe down uh, to get the dust off. And um, possibly avoiding wall hangings that can collect dust. So anything that is a fabric. Um, and then you want to try to keep all clothes in the closet because they will attract less dust and dust mites. And have a specific place for your books so that they're not just laying out getting dusty, which will give you more symptoms. And then obviously when allergy season is upon us and we're into the pollen allergens, you want to make sure that you're sleeping with your window shut. So the pollen count goes up as soon as sunset happens and it continues to climb throughout the night. And then when the sun comes out and the sun is higher during the day, we tend to burn off those pollens and the pollen count actually goes down. So 
as we know, so many people are very, very sensitive to uh, pollens. You want to make sure that during uh, pollen season, you clean and or replace your air conditioning filters on a regular basis. Avoid exercising outdoors during the early morning or after sunset when the pollen counts start to go up or in the early morning when they're really high. Use a clothes dryer instead of hanging your clothes on the line because hanging your clothes on the line is simply collecting pollens on your clothes that then, you're then going to drag into your house and put on your body. Uh, take a shower and wash your hair every night. This is important. If you're outside and you're having exposure, you're getting pollens in your hair. You're getting pollens on your body and then you're dragging it inside and you're pollinating your house. So I usually will tell my patients to have the clothes that you're wearing outside and then when you come inside, when you're in for the day, take off those clothes. Maybe take a shower. If you can't take a shower right then, put on some sweats if you're going to be setting down so you're so that a patient's not or a person's not pollinating their whole environment. But then if you don't take a shower at night and all that pollen is on your hair, you're putting it into your bedding and into your pillow. So if you can take a shower and wash your hair every night, that removes the pollen, keeps it from getting all over your house. And when you're outside and you have seasonal allergies, make sure you're wearing a mask that prevents allergens from penetrating past the mask into uh, your system for when you're inhaling. Um, keep the landscape around your house and your home very tidy because that will help detour mold and weeds from growing and other debris which are going to give you symptoms. And since I just mentioned mold, let's talk about kind of reducing mold in your environment. Now here in the Southwest, people think, oh, we don't have mold because it's, it's dry here, but we actually have mold everywhere. And so mold, we primarily see when it's cold. So there's this kind of saying that they teach us in school, it's called mold in the cold and yeast in the beast. So we see yeast when it's hot, we see mold when it's cold, but you can have mold year round, uh, whether it's hot or cold, but we still see mold when it's cold outside. So you wanna make sure that you're reducing the humidity in your home to about 50%, and in Mexico that's usually not a big deal because it's so dry here, but throughout the country and in other areas of the world, humidity can be a real issue. Clean surfaces where, we, where, you, where a patient knows that mold is growing to inhibit further mold growth. Don't steam clean carpets. So moisture trapped in the carpet will cause it to kind of get into the padding and create an, a perfect environment for mold to grow. Um, so if you can, remove the carpeting from your bedroom and use hardwood, and that way you can use throw rugs if you want, but you can take them up and clean them as needed. Um, make sure that you're getting someone or you're doing it yourself, mowing your lawn and raking for leaves. That helps keep the mold down. Um, and again, wear a mask if you're if you're working outside yourself and you have a mold allergy or mold sensitivity. Uh, again, you don't want to hang clothes outside. It can cause uh, mold spores to get onto the clothes. And then make sure that potted plants um, that have to have a lot of moisture are not kept indoors, but keep them outside when possible so you don't have mold growing in your house. Um, if you're uh, having, if you have to have a humidifier in your house, make sure you're not giving too much humidity. And then also make sure that you're changing your pillow about once a year so that you're not getting um, 
any moisture from like sweating or perspiration into that pillow and that can be growing a little bit of mold and or or wash your pillows regularly um, and put your clothes in a dryer try not to hang them outside and an, uh, another area to discuss now this is more for bigger cities not so much for rural areas although it can be anywhere is cockroach allergies and that's one of the main causes that we've seen with research in inner cities and the development of asthma is a cockroach excrement from areas that are not treated well to prevent cockroaches so you want to make sure that wherever you're living that if you have an issue with cockroaches that you're getting taken care of immediately and there are a lot of ways to eco-friendly get rid of cockroaches you can call an exterminating company and determine what is best for your environment but as soon as you have if you have cockroaches as soon as it's exterminated you want to make sure that that area is cleaned immediately you can also use people can use cockroach traps especially in the kitchen and try to seal up any small cracks in the living environment that cockroaches can enter from the outside into the home also placing food in airtight containers thoroughly cleaning kitchens after every meal not leaving dirty dishes in the sink or in the trash will help detour cockroaches from coming into an environment and removing old newspapers or items where cockroaches may want to hide can also help um, cockroach proof your environment and then last but not least in allergy proofing our environment is uh, in regards to pets so many many people have pets and one of the first things I've had patients come in and tell me is that the allergist has told them get rid of your pets and that is frankly in 90% of the case not going to happen and this because they're people's family members so this can include cats dogs rodents birds any any animals that may be inside your environment or even outside in New Mexico we have a lot of horses and uh, people will have horse allergies and they are not willing to get rid of their horses but this is primarily for indoor stuff and most people don't keep their house their their horses inside but if you think that you're if you're determined that you have a pet allergy you want to make sure that you're getting your pets groomed on a regular basis they should be bathed and have their hair combed out probably not by the person who's allergic to the, the animal but by someone else either in the family or take the pet to a groomer um, making sure that uh, again that that cloth it, uh, say furniture is less utilized in more leather furniture or vinyl furniture uh, if you're gonna keep pets in the house try not to keep them in the area where you sleep so I'll oftentimes ask patients you know do your pets sleep with you and if that's a big yes and that's something that someone is going to continue to do okay well you're going to suffer with allergies period that's just the way it's going to be but if you can keep if a person can keep their pets off of their bedding and out of the bedroom it really helps with um, with allergies and then vacuuming again regularly uh, cleaning up any pet hair regularly is going to be really important and keeping the uh, pets off of the clothing so keep the clothes in the closet with the door shut it has been noted that uh, people who have severe cat allergies can be in a store with somebody who has cat dander on their clothes and can activate allergy symptoms just from that 
And I've also had people tell me when they move into a new home that they'll start experiencing symptoms. And it's been found that when people who have cats in their home, they can have their house professionally cleaned with no cats in it at all. And it can take three years to get the dander out of that environment. Uh, dog dander can take up to a year, even after a professional cleaning. So just be aware of, of that. And if you're moving into a new environment or you're thinking of renting or buying a home, find out if you have severe allergies, if there were pets in the home before, because you may want to do a professional cleaning, but still realize that symptoms may persist because it takes a very long time to get pet dander out of an environment. And so the very last thing I wanted to talk about are herbal remedies for allergies. I have a lot of patients who don't want to take any type of uh, medication over the counter. They would like to do things herbally. And so I do have a sheet. I'm going to put it up on the website for herbal remedies for allergies. There are a lot of herbal remedies and people do have to be careful because many of these remedies can interact with other medications or can have significant side effects. So no herbal should be used without talking to your health professional first. Like I mentioned earlier, bee pollen is really popular for people to use for their allergy for a form of immunotherapy. But side effects from this can be nausea, can be diarrhea, vomiting, you can have a decrease in appetite, it can give you a rash, allergic reactions, and you can even anaphylact. That's because you're actually putting in a little bit of what you're allergic to into your immune system. And depending on how sensitive a person is, that can be life-threatening. There are other things that people often ask me if they can use, such as milk thistle. And again, just depending on what your sensitivities are, you need to check with your healthcare professional before you take any of those. Green tea is also often used frequently to treat allergy symptoms and because it's, it's not just drinking it in the tea, they make it in different forms. However, you wanna make sure you're really careful with that. If, you, if a patient has any kidney inflammation, gastrointestinal ulcers, insomnia, cardiovascular disease, intraocular pressure, do not use that product. And so that's why it's important for a person to check with their healthcare provider before taking any type of supplement. And obviously, no herbs or supplements should be used if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. One uh, herb that I will sometimes recommend for patients is um, Herba Santa. And that's a Southwest uh, native herb that is often used to help treat allergies in the southwest region and sometimes I'll recommend that because it really doesn't have any known drug interactions. It does have a very low side effect profile but again before taking anything you need to check a patient should check with their healthcare professional. I'm going to put the herbal supplements on the website for people to look at and it has the side effects, contraindications, precautions, but nothing should be taken without thorough evaluation from a professional healthcare provider who is experienced with treating allergies and has knowledge of herbal remedies. So that concludes the allergy podcast. I wanted to thank James for listening, Paul for listening, as well as Kathy V, Brad F., Emily, as well as Martha, 
and all of our podcast listeners uh, across the United States and globally. We appreciate your uh, taking the time to listen to our podcast. I welcome all questions and comments. If you would like to contact us, please feel free to contact us on any of the podcast sites that have that availability. You can contact us on Facebook, on our website at www.evercarefamilypractice.com, by email at evercarefamilypractice at gmail.com, or by phone at 505-780-8301. I wish everyone happiness and health and the ability to continue to make your own healthcare decisions, own healthcare choices, and to always educate yourself before doing anything involving healthcare. Knowledge is power, and you need to seek that out, not on Dr. Google, but with talking to your healthcare provider, as well as um, looking in, uh, up on reputable sites before uh, doing anything that could affect your healthcare. And uh, I wish everyone health and happiness. Have a good rest of your day.